we will look at risk conditions in pregnancy. Now, this risk condition in pregnancy, um, I will touch the major five of them. There are, there are so many, um, but there are five that we won't look at today. So, you can either call it risk conditions in pregnancy, you can call it uh, five medical conditions that occur in pregnancy. It just wouldn't make any difference. So in our book, <clears throat> in the Sanders book, we have to go in and look at these things in detail. Now, in the English, we will be tasked with certain questions. And the questions that we will be tasked with or we are tasked with at the level of the English, these questions, 98% of these questions or approximately 98% of these questions um, will be taken from conditions nursing management, that is nursing interventions. What would the nurse do? What would the nurse do? These are things the questions are going to be asking us. Now, in as much as we know that now a question is going to come like, what would the nurse do? What would the nurse say? Those questions are deeply rooted in <clears throat> the nursing management when it comes to the English. Now, in order to put ourselves in the position to understand and answer this question appropriately, we must understand um, the nursing rationale for these conditions we have in here. Take, for example, abortion. Abortion is one of the risk conditions that we experience in pregnancy. Now, spontaneous abortion, abortion comes in the first trimester of pregnancy. That is when any pregnancy is terminated below 20 weeks old. <clears throat> a pregnancy that is less than 500 grams, that is the fetus or the, or the implant is less than 500 grams, that is regarded as abortion. That's the case definition for abortion. Now, you want to go ahead and look at the various types of abortion. There are so many, but there are five major ones. You have the inevitable, the missed abortion, you have the incomplete abortion, you have, uh, 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 you have all those types. There are five conditions, there are five abortions in general, but there are many, but there are five that we'll talk about, and I want you to look at those five. Now, you want to go ahead and look at those five kind of abortions. Read about them, know what um what are those things that would you do and not do when a client has abortion. Now, under there, the nursing management will include like methane barrier. That's the first thing the nurse wants to do when a client is undergoing abortion. It could be threatening abortion, it could be inevitable abortion, it could be complete or incomplete. The first thing is the client should maintain a barrier. Now, because Guess what? The reason why you are making a bare rest is when you are pregnant, <clears throat> this is what's going to happen. When you are in labor and, go, and you go to the hospital, what happens? They ask you to walk around. When you walking around can increase the contraction, it stimulates the labor, it stimulates the contraction. Now, when there is contraction, there will be cervical dilatation. So the cervix will dilate and the child will keep descending. So that's the rationale in walking around when you are at the point of delivery in the hospital or when you're on a labor unit. Now, 
in the case of abortion, it is, it is not a term pregnancy. It is just an abrupt uh, cervical dilatation due to other factors. So in that case, you are asked to get in the bed to rest because if you keep moving around, that will stimulate <clears throat> the cervix of the contraction. Then the, you sort of have contraction and that will increase the cervical dilatation. Then the implant that is in there will keep coming out. So that's what happened in the case of uh, when you're having abortion. The first thing you want to do is to have maintain a very good rest as a client. The next thing is the nurse wants to monitor the client's vital signs. Why? Because the vital signs are indicator of our health status. So if indeed we are having some health problems, we can only get to know that this condition is subsiding, meaning it's getting okay, or it's progressing, meaning it's getting worse. So the only way we do that is by doing vital signs. So the vital signs give us the health status of the patient. Another nursing rationale is monitor for cramping and bleeding. If the individual is having cramping and bleeding, you monitor for that. You also count the amount of perineal part of the change because when the client is having abortion, they are having bleeding, they are having vaginal bleeding. Now, how do we count vaginal bleeding? Is by counting the amount of parts that we only have the client having. So this can tell us the amount of blood loss that the client has, uh, the client is going through. So we have to do this nursing rationale and know them. Another one says, <clears throat> prepare the client. You mon you maintain IV fluids as prescribed. Monitor for signs of hemorrhage or shock. Now, you when the client is having uh, abortion, you monitor vital signs. Monitor for signs of bleeding and shock. What are the signs of bleeding? You're going to have what? You're going to have hypertension. You're going to have what? Increased heart rate. You're going to have what? Pile of the skin. These are cardinal indicators for hemorrhage. Then you monitor for shock, dizziness, weakness. The person can have blurred vision. The person breathing is getting lower. Breath rate is getting lower. These are things you want to pick up. Now, in the end class, we study these things, we learn that when we talk about abortion, what comes to our mind? The sign and symptom of abortion, how do we define abortion, what are the nursing interventions for abortion? So those are things that we have to learn in our books. If we don't learn them, we cannot understand them. So whenever you leave from here, you want to open your, your, your book, read these things, look them up and have a, and have a good understanding about these conditions now it also says <clears throat> prepare the client for dnc now if it is inevitable abortion that's why i want you to read the kind of abortion and know the management for each abortion now in the case of inevitable abortion meaning it is inevitable means it cannot be stopped we cannot treat it to keep the baby meaning anything we do the child will be aborted so that makes it to be an inch Inevitable abortion, meaning it, it cannot be managed. So in that case, if that's the kind of abortion we are seeing, like when you saw a you saw a seventy years old girl, she's pregnant in she's fifteen weeks pregnant and she's having vaginal bleeding. Now the next thing you're gonna see, you will see some portion of the implant or or of the zygote or of the embryo, what is whatever is in there, is coming out. You see, take things coming out vaginally. Now, those are signs that 
this individual cannot we cannot manage this particular abortion so indeed this, this, this becomes an inevitable abortion so in this case we cannot manage it we cannot stop it what we do then the nurse must prepare that child or that or patient for dnc dnc means annotation and curatage so in that case, they have to go in and evacuate the uterus or take out the fetus, the implant, or the zygote, the embryo, whatsoever it is, they have to take it off. So when they take that off, then <clears throat> the, the patient can be at rest. So we have to understand these things. Now, another thing is um, Rogam D. Rogam D immune globulin is prescribed for an RH negative client. If the client is Irish negative, once the client goes through abortion, we have to give the wife the Rogam D. Now, Rogam D is given two different times in our pregnancy. We give Rogam D <clears throat> between 13 to 15 or 20 weeks. If the client has an abortion, in that case, we can administer it. Now, at any point in time, we can stay abusive if there was an abortion and there was a since that uh, there is blood mixing there. Now, but the two regular periods in a full-term pregnancy, we give Rogam D at two regular intervals. We give it at one of the two regular intervals. Let me say it this way. So the first one we give it at, at around 28 weeks of gestation, we can administer it. If we miss that period and we did not administer when the child is born, we should administer this particular medication within the first three days, 72 hours after delivery to the mother. So within 72 hours after delivery, the mother must receive the Rokan D. Let's remember, the Rokan D is not given for the fetus or for the child or for the baby. It is for the mother. Because if the mother does not take this Rokan D injection after being sensitized to the child's blood, the mother is going to lose her subsequent children that she's going to have after this delivery. So the Rokam D is being administered because we want to save her unborn fetuses or her unborn children that want to come after this baby. Because when she, if she fails to take that medication, she has RH negative antigen on her blood. The next child she's going to have, the child she had, if that child's blood was RH positive and the child and the mom blood crossed, the antibodies from that child will stay in the mother. It's not going to harm the mother, though. It will harm the mother's next pregnancy. If she ever got pregnant again, in that case, her blood is already carrying some dangerous antibodies. So these dangerous antibodies will go and attack the new uh, pregnancy that she's undergoing now. So that pregnancy the old antibody from the first child that had the RH positive blood that got mixed with her RH negative blood when she was pregnant previously, those antibodies will become activated and they will attack the present pregnancy or the child she's having right now. Whether that child is RH negative or RH positive, they will attack that baby that is in utero and she will lose that baby and she will keep losing her children until she take the treatment with the or, or, or with the Rogan medication, or else she will keep losing her kid. So these are things that we have to read the standards and understand these things within the book. They are in the standards. If we do not read these headlines 
and read this nursing intervention, when the anchor asks, or oh, what would the nurse do? The anchor asks a question. <clears throat> a 23 years old female who is having lower abdominal pains, having vaginal bleeding, she told the nurse that she missed her period for the past three months. After doing the HCG test, the nurse found that the, that the patient has been pregnant. What would, what would the nurse immediate action? So in that case, the question did not tell that the child is having abortion. No, it lay out for you a case scenario that if you look at keenly, it is abortion. This child is 23 years old. She missed her period for the past three months. Um, she's having vaginal bleeding. She has lower abdominal pains. She's vomiting. She's nauseated and other things. The nurse came and did the HCG test and she's pregnant. What would the nurse do in that case? What would be the nurse priority, priority action? They will give you a series of options. Now, those correct options come from the nursing intervention in our book. They're going to have <clears throat> assess, the, assess, the, assess the patient. They're going to have, have the patient have a bed rest, give the patient drugs or medication to stop the vomiting. They're going to have all these things in the question option. You only get to know if you read this book and you saw that the, the child, the, the patient should have an immediate bed rest. That's the first thing we do. Get in the bed and get a bed rest. Then we go ahead and do the father's son. So getting in the bed is the priority when the client is having abortion. We have to know the signs and symptoms of abortion before moving forward. So these are conditions we're going to see in the anchor. They are in our book. We have to make sure that we know these conditions. We have to go about reading them. We have to know them. If you are free, you have free time, sitting home, chilling, pick up your phone. They have the e-book for this Sunday's book, the e-one. You can go through the e and look at it and just read. When you are at work and you are not busy, your work is kind of for, uh, easy to do or it's kind of a work that you can do and chill a lot, do not chill. Read the anchored material. This thing, the more you read them, the better you become confident in the exam. And in the end class, when you do your first 10 questions, if the first 10 questions make sense to you, it raises your confidence, it carries away your anxiety. But if the first 10 questions were like Greek to you, that will reduce your confidence. And when we have reduced confidence, we are going to have increased testing anxiety. So we have to manage our anxiety by First of all, knowing the material to our fingertip. You're going to have anemia in this book. We'll talk about anemia. You have cardiac disease conditions, under risk condition. You have a one we call chromionitis or chorioamionitis. <clears throat> this is like a, a bacterial infection that occurs in the amniotic cavity. It is in here. You got to read about this part condition, read about the assessment data. Read about the intervention. Then we have diabetes mellitus in pregnancy. We'll discuss about this in, in, uh, in a very few time from now. <clears throat> then we have gestational diabetes mellitus. When can we do a diabetic test for the client when she's pregnant? It is important. How can we do the test? It is important. What are the rationales surrounding this test? It's important. Then we have the intervention. What can be done in every stage of the gestation diabetes test or assessment? Everything is in our book. We have um, DRC, the simulated intravascular coagulation that I talked about yesterday. I said DRC, 
it is a maternal condition in which our blood clotting cascades are activated. When this occurs, our blood forms clumps like. When the clumps are too many in our blood, our blood cannot flow frequently like a fluid. In that case, it posts threat to the mothers and the child's life. You have that. You have the um, you have the um, assessment, the intervention. You have it. You have ectopic pregnancy. Go ahead and read this thing. You have endometritis. It's an infection of the line of the uterus that occur to the females. Did you have all of the symptoms, the intervention? Make sure when you are reading this condition, please read the intervention. The nursing interventions are so important. They are so, so important in that if we do not know these nursing interventions, we cannot move ahead and know anything about these conditions. Look at fetal death in utero. What are the causes? What are the sudden symptoms? What can we do when the fetal is still having a still or fetal die in utero? What can be done? Hepatitis, hematoma, um, HIV and AIDS in pregnancy. Know when it can be done. When it is done, if the woman is positive, what can be done? Look at that. Look at how did the form mold. Um, this how do we treat it? Look at hyper MSA gravidara. We'll talk about that. Look at this condition. There are several things: gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, eclampsia, or uh, health syndrome. These are things we gotta read and know to our fingertip in this particular course outline. We have to know them. You have like an infection in pregnancy, incompetent service. When service is incompetent, what happens in that case? If they are all in here, what can we do? We'll talk about that. Multiple gestation, pyelonephritis, STI in pregnancy. What can we do when a client has STI? They come STI. The STI test we do in pregnancy, the GBS. At what age do we do GBS? Uh, the group B staff infection to pregnant women. When can we do the test for the pregnant women? These are things we should understand. When a woman has tuberculosis and she's pregnant, what can she do? What can be done? What are the nurturing interventions about these conditions? It is important. They are in our book. We have the time to look at these things. Let's look at them. Let's read them. Let's understand what are we doing and where we are. These are very important for the willpower for the interest. If we cannot master these things, believe me, getting to the end class becomes difficult. And like I always tell people, if you think the end class is important to you, you have to put in the time to study. No matter if you fail one or two or three times, if you cannot do the right thing to put you on the right track to pass the end class, you're still not going to pass the end class. We should not be satisfied until we pass the entrance. If that's the case and we are working towards our dissatisfaction where we are, we are going to pass the entrance. So these are things sometimes I'm just going to come up and say these things so we can have adequate idea and that's motivation to study and pass our entrance. Because without these things, we cannot pass the entrance. We have to read the entrance. We have to look at other things on the English, they are very, very important. Any questions so far? Any questions? So 
let's let's start with our question answer so these are race conditions in pregnancy or recording the five medical conditions that occur in pregnancy cervical uh, cervical insufficiency hyper MSH gravidarum gestational hypertension anemia in pregnancy and we have gestational diabetes mellitus now so let's start with uh, the first one which is the cervical insufficiency now these are unexpected medical conditions that occur during our pregnancy or during the pregnancy of a, of a woman um what is important about this condition is early early um early detection if we diagnose them in an early stage we can provide for them prompt management the longer we wait to diagnose them the more difficult it becomes to cure and the the worst outcome we're gonna have so it's always good to know about them in the earliest time so we can start looking at how to treat them so the first one is cervical insufficiency now um one thing about this condition i want us to know is when we have this condition to look at or we'll have them to look at to study them <clears throat> let's be able to define the condition without looking at it on the book or in the book or on paper because in the end class they're going to ask a condition question about this condition the first thing that comes to your mind when you are reading an endless question when you see the root word for the question what the question is about that makes sense to you that makes you to understand exactly what you want if you have any knowledge about the condition that can help to ease the tension the question going to be presented with if you do not have any idea about the question and you are reading the question coming down to the end it increases your anxiety which can make you to even feel the question if the question is easy so let's try to remove all of these conditions write down on piece of sheet i learned by writing my by, by writing down my points i got a notepad i write down these bullet points in the notepad i'm going to write about <clears throat> cervical insufficiency read in front of premature cervix dilation or premature cervix opening meaning the cervix is opening at the point in time that it is not supposed to open. That makes it to be premature opening of the cervix. Meaning the cervix is not sufficient to withhold the fetus or the implant that is in the uterus. So based upon this, it's opening and you are seeing, that's why they call it cervical insufficiency. Now, <clears throat> this condition, I will start with the first one, like I said, Cervical insufficiency is a variable condition that um, the cervix is expelling what is in it. So normally, when we have a, uh, our cervix should be able to uphold what is in there. So you have the uterus, the door to the uterus. The uterus door is the cervix. So the cervix is where... Um, the child going to pass to come out at delivery or during abortion. So that service, it has a gate. It has a gateway. Now that gateway for the service is 
where we try to like uh, to keep close. At any point in time when I get open, when the gate opens, what happens? What is in there will come out. And that's not what we want in pregnancy. Now in this case, <clears throat> um, whenever our service is not in tight, it will allow other things that is in there to come out. And we have we have we have three things in the cervix that when you are pregnant. You have the membrane, you have the baby, and you have the placenta. Those are three things that are formed in the uterus when you get pregnant. So the membrane comes out first. The next thing is the baby. And the last one is the placenta. Those are what that we found in the uterus. Now, when we're having cervical insufficiency, when the cervix is not holding tight, the membrane going to rupture and, come, and, and comes out. The fetus will try to come out through blood. That's why we have bleeding condition when we are having abortion or when like you see bleeding coming out. And the last thing that comes out is the placenta. So those are three things that are going to come out when the cervix is not intact. Now, there are signs and symptoms that we want to understand about this particular cervical insufficiency. Those signs and symptoms include one, there will be a pink stain vaginal discharge. The mom will have a pink tint, very pink, a pink tint or stain, a pink stain vaginal discharge. You're going to have the all bleeding. So sometimes if you don't have a, a blood mixed with fluid, serous sanguinal fluid, you're going to have blood, like a blood coming, like a sanguinous fluid coming out. <clears throat> now, you're also going to see that there will be possible gush of fluid. There will be gush, meaning a huge gush of fluid. You will see this fluid coming out. So when the fluid comes out, meaning the membrane has ruptured. Remember, I said there are three things that we keep in uterus, in our uterus. We keep the baby, the membrane, and the placenta. And before delivery occurs, to complete delivery, we must put all these things out before we can say, okay, the woman has given birth safely. Now, so you'll see the gush of fluid coming out when the woman has cervical insufficiency, meaning when, when the cervix is not intact. Now, <clears throat> So this is the vagina right here, and the surface come like this, like this, and there's a little opening here. So when we do the physical examination of our hand, our finger goes between here. So where we feel is the surface. So in the case of this condition, this surface opens. It opens. Imagine if the surface is open like this, when the baby is in here, what happened to the baby? It will come out. You have the baby, you have uh, the membrane, and you have the placenta behind here. So when the cervix opens, what happens? It gives rise to the baby coming out. So the, the membrane will come out, the baby comes out, and the placenta will follow. <clears throat> now, so when the cervix is insufficient, the first thing you're going to see is blood. Blood or pink discharge coming out. The next thing you'll see, the fluid that is around this baby. It's called the membrane. This will come out. Then you see this coming out. The next thing you're going to see is there will be uterine contraction. There will be uterine contraction. Why? Because this contraction must occur to give force to the cervix to keep opening. So the cervix will keep opening until 
everything in the start of camera. <clears throat> the next thing we're going to see, <clears throat> they're going to be expulsion of the fetus. Expulsion. There will be expulsion of the fetus. The fetus will come out. It will be expelled <clears throat> because the cervix is no longer intact. So because the cervix is not, in, not intact, so the fetus will come out. The fetus will come out, then the child is out, then there is a complete abortion or a complete delivery of the child in this case. Now, so these are things that are going to happen in the case of cervical insufficiency. So one of the more these symptoms, they are in our book. We can read them and know them very well. Now, when that happens, there are a lot of tests we do or procedures we do to see how can we manage these conditions or this condition. Now, we do an ultrasound. Now, when we do the ultrasound in this case, it will present a short cervix. The cervix will become short. Short cervix will, will be seen on the ultrasound result. There will be short cervix. Now, um, <clears throat> it will be less than 25 millimeter. So in that case, that will be a short cervix shown there. Now, the next thing we want to do on here, um, there will be effacement, which indicates reduced cervical insufficient uh, competency. So the child, there will be effacement. The child will present or will be coming down in the, um, under the ultrasound. Now, whenever there is premature effacement, definitely meaning the cervix is not competent to withhold what is in the cervix. That is leading to the effacement that we are talking about here. Then, in this case, we we'll do, if everything is not out yet, we we'll do what we call prophylactic cyclage. We we'll do what we call prophylactic, prophylactic cyclage. Now, <clears throat> Um, this this is a procedure we do. Now this procedure is like suturing, it's like sewing, it's like putting the cervix back together. Because like I said, the cervix is open like this. So the what is in here coming out. So in this case, we do what we call prophylactic circulation, meaning we we'll suture or give serious to the cervix. So we we'll go in and close the cervix. So this is how we're going. They will go in and manage so the cervix. The cervix will be so they will sew it or they will like close it. Because if it remains open, the child will, the fetus will come down and everything in there will come down and then we will lose the pregnancy. So they'll go in and create a cyclage or sew it in that point in time. Now this particular cyclage is a surgical reinforcement of the cervix with a heavy ligature that is placed sub mucosally around the surface to strengthen it and prevent premature cervical dilatation. So we do this to prevent the cervix from what dilating. Because if the cervix keep dilating, <clears throat> what happened will lose the fetus and everything in there. Now this occurs between the 12 to 14 weeks. Now we do this between the 12 to the 14 week of pregnancy. That's what we do the cervical the overactive cyclist. Now, so this will happen and it remains in place. We do, we do not remove the sutures until the pregnancy reaches 36 to 38 weeks. Now, because at this point, 
the fetus is fully developed and the, the, the female is at term to give birth. So we go back at 36 to 38 weeks, we remove the sutures. We took out the, the sutures and now we have a normal cervix that will harbor a delivery of the fetus. At this stage, meaning we are at term delivery, meaning the woman has reached a term to give birth. That's what happened in the case of uh, this particular cervical insufficiency. Now we have, I want to remember the time at which the cell, this procedure can be done and the time at which it can be undone, it can be removed. It is important for the anchors. Remember the sign of symptoms. <clears throat> so I said, um, cervical insufficiency means the cervix is not competent to hold what is in the uterus. Because we know that the cervix is the doorway or is the gateway to our feet or, or to our uterus, right? So if the cervix is insufficient, meaning it is not competent enough to withhold what is in uterus or what is in uterus. Now in this case, the cervix will be dilating and allowing what is in the uterus, that, is, that include the membrane, the fetus, and the placenta to come out. So when it is coming out, we need to do a procedure that will prevent those three things from coming out. That procedure is what we call prophylactic cyclic, meaning this means prevention. When you have the word, uh, pro, word prophylaxis, it means prevention. Cyclic means to suture, to sew. So in this case, we'll do a preventive suturing of the cervix. So we go, we put the cervix together like this, we suture the cervix. When the cervix is closed, what is in this, what is in usual will not come out. So we go in and, and sew the cervix. So when we sew the cervix, what is in here will not come out. And this can be done between 12 to 14 weeks of pregnancy. So it, it remains in until 36 to 38 weeks of pregnancy. That is when the female is almost about to give birth. Matter of fact, when she reaches 38 weeks, that's, that's a term pregnancy. So at this stage, we go in and remove the sutures from the cervix to allow the cervix to dilate normally. So that's why the procedure is and that's what occurs in there. Yes, I'm Yeah. Um, they, um, under prophylactic, uh, what do they call it? Cyclish. Cyclish. Was it the same as the cervical cyclish? Yes. So it's the same as cervical cyclish. Okay, so why, if they, if they do that, well, if they not, um, in case the person got to have a C-section, do they leave it in place? Or no. So, so it is removed. So the reason why it is done at that stage, it is done because we want to prevent abortion. We want to uphold the pregnancy until term delivery. So at term delivery, that is between 36 to 38 weeks, they, they will remove it. So the cervix can dilate normally. Because if we don't suture it at that point in time or don't create a circulation, the cervix will dilate prematurely and will lose the pregnancy. That's why they are doing this particular preventive cyclish. So when the child, if, the, if, if it is time to give birth, they'll remove the cyclish. Now, if the woman needs to do 
season due to other complications in that case they'll remove it and the woman can still go in and do the uh, c-session so in other words i'm gonna do this prevent miscarriage he said this will help to prevent miscarriage yes 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 now the reason why i'm not using the word miscarriage is um there is a difference between these these words we use when it comes to nursing and that's why you hear me i'm defining the words as i'm using it because the anchor is very keen on that um so we have preterm we have abortion miscarriage is like our, our delayment delayment term now abortion is any pregnancy that got terminated before 20 weeks of gestation that becomes abortion or any person that passed to the witch but the fetus is less than 500 grams in weight that is regarded as abortion now any abortion any abortion any pregnancy after 20 weeks to 37 weeks is regarded as preterm birth so if you have an abortion between 20 to 37 weeks, it is preterm delivery. Or the child survived, or the child did not survive, or the child died. In that case, it is regarded as preterm. And then pregnancy after 37 weeks, upward is a term delivery. Anyone between 20 to 37 weeks is termed as preterm. Anyone below 20 weeks or less than 500 grams is regarded as what? Abortion. That's why you see me using that one miscarriage. Well, I'm not because the Sanders book is saying that uh -huh. um, the so it is done between 36 to 38 weeks. So it, it, can, it can be 36, it can be 37, it can be 38 weeks, depending. Now, that's what I said, if there is other complication, but if um, if the cervix is still, is, it still remains the complication. If the cervix is the complication that causing this woman not to give birth vaginally, then the cervix will remain in place until the session until the c-session is done after the c-session then they'll remove the circles because the circles is only in there to prevent the fetus or what is implanted into the uterus from coming out that's why it is there so if indeed and if the cervix clevis is the one that is holding the pregnancy and will remove it will lose everything in there meaning we cannot take it out until Indeed, if C-section is required, we'll do the C-section before taking it out. But if it is okay and it is not the primary cause for the female going for cesarean session, then we'll remove it and go for the procedure. Because at some point in time, if the client reaches this particular term here, the client can remove, can remove the circulation and the client can still have NVD normal vaginal delivery to the same place we, uh, we, we, we put the circles 
so they can still remove it and the female can still have she can still have delivery vaginally so it comes the two way it depends like i said on the complication that presenting along with the condition You're welcome. So, um, so these are things that you're gonna see. You look in the book. You wanna look at the nurse management for these conditions. Look at um, what can we do. They are all in our books. So we have to read those nurse management and understand them very well. Any other, any other question? Morning sickness. So hyperemesis gravidarum. It's almost like morning sickness where you are pregnant and in the morning hour you have nausea, vomiting, everything. But there is a difference between this condition and morning sickness. Morning sickness will usually occur in your first three months when you get pregnant, which is the first trimester. Now, for this sickness, it does not only occur during that period. This hyperemesis gravidarum, it is an excessive, that's the word that defines it for other conditions. It is an excessive nausea and vomiting um, that is prolonged above 12 weeks of gestation, wherein the client will lose or will lose 5% of their total body weight and the client will have irregularized imbalance. They will have irregularized imbalance. And the client will have acetone urea and they will have ketone urea. These are things that are going to happen in the case of hyper MSC gravidarum. So there are defining features of hyper MSC gravidarum that differentiate it from other conditions those features are one the client will have excessive nausea and vomiting that's one two the client will persist with these symptoms above 12 which is above three months four the client will lose five percent of their body weight five the client will have acetone urea they will have acid acetones in the urine which is called acetone urea they're going to have ketones in the urine which is called ketone urea so these are the defining and the feature that differentiate this hyperemetic epidemic from other conditions like morning sickness in morning sickness we can have um we can have uh, nausea vomiting like in the morning hour but this should not persist for more than three months or for, for more than 12 weeks. So, so when we get pregnant, uh, we have these experiences for like three months and it goes away in our second and third trimester. All, both conditions are due to increase in the HCG, which is the hemochorionic gonadotropin. So when there's an increase in this HCG hormone in our body, it makes us to feel nauseated and will throw up. But in the case of a hyperemetic gravidarum, it gets too much high. It is overplus high. So because of the overplus highness, we experience so many things in there.
That's what happened in this case. So all we need to do is to make sure that uh, we use the red management. So this is the case definition for hyper energy capital. There are so many risk factors. And when, the, and, when, and when the woman is having these symptoms, the child is at risk for intrauterine growth restriction, intrauterine growth restriction or retardation. So the child, the fetus in utero would not grow because the mother is throwing out. She's having fluid and regular imbalance. She's not eating. She's losing weight. Um, so those things can suppress the fetus from growing in uterus. So that's what we call the hyperemetic epidemic. It could be due to your first pregnancy. It could be due to obesity. It could be due to history of migraine. There are so many different risk factors that are linked to this condition. When a woman has this condition, there will be excessive prolonged periods of vomiting. She's going to have that. They're going to be um, weight loss. There will be dehydration that will lead to um, weight loss or fluid imbalance. They're going to be increased pulse rate. They're going to be decreased blood pressure and they're going to be poor skin turbor due to the excessive familiar where she has lost importance, electrolytes and fluid from the body. So she's going to have poor skin turbor and she will be weak and she will look different. So these are things that are going to happen to the client when the client has hyperemesis gravitarium. Now, we'll do the lab test. We'll do urinalysis. The urinalysis will give us, we'll see ketones in the urine, ketones, we'll see acetones in the urine. These are things we're going to see in the urine. These things will give us some, indeed, what is having hyperemesis of the diamond. Then we're going to go ahead also and do the chemistry profile. We'll do the client chemistry profile. This includes, we'll look at all of the metabolic conditions, um, the enzymes, the bilirubin level. We'll look at all these things. Now, you must know your bilirubin level and your other lab values. You must do them to the, to the front for the NCLEX. Now, um, the client will have both metabolic acidosis and the client will have metabolic alkalosis. Now, these are two things the client is going to have. The client is going to have metabolic acidosis. Why? Because the client is not eating. So when she's not eating, her body will build, build up in so much acid. That will lead to having metabolic acidosis because she's starving. So when a client is starving, when you're having starvation, you're going to be having hyper um, uh, you're going to be having metabolic acidosis because she's starving. Now, she's going to have metabolic acidosis because she's having excessive vomiting. So she will have metabolic acidosis due to what? Vomiting. So in this case, the woman is going to have both metabolic acidosis and metabolic acidosis. She's having high acidosis because she's not eating. She's starving. She's having starvation. She's going to have metabolic acidosis because she's vomiting. When you are vomiting, you are chewing up. You are losing important electrolytes. This will lead to what? Metabolic alkalosis. This is going to happen to the patient. We can do for the client the thyroid test. The thyroid test, you're going to have hyperthyroidism. 
will do for a complete blood count. The CBC will do complete blood count. We'll do the HGB. We'll do the hematocrit. We'll do the red blood cell. The red blood cell. We'll do the platelet count. And she's going to have, um, there'll be uh, low, the blood cell will be low. Then, we monitor the client input and output because she's vomiting. She's at fuel. She has. She's having fluid loss. She won't be at risk for fluid volume deficit. We monitor the client vital sign. Monitor the client weight. Have the client remain on NPO for at least 24 to 48 hours. That is important. When the client is having this condition, the client remains on NPO. NPO, nothing per os. NPO for at least 24 to 48 hours. The client should remain on for, 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 for this amount of time. So that the client, because any put in the client mouth will stimulate the formatting and it will keep on. So the client must be on NPO. In this case, we can serve medication. We will give range of lactate. Among the fluids, we have different fluids. If you look in your, in your book, you have fluids and the rationale. So I want you to look in your book for me and look out for me isotonic solutions look for me hypertonic uh, uh, solutions look for me hypotonic solution and their indication so when do we administer this fluid when the client is sick what signal can require to administer hypertonic hypo or isotonic solution what condition can we administer you can look at this thing here in the book look at the various solution and their indication so in this case, the client will take ranger lactate. For short, RL ranger lactate is what type of fluid? D5W or D, D5 in, uh, D5 percent in water is what kind of solution? Uh, normal saline NS 0.9 percent, 0.5 percent, M3 percent. What are when can we administer these solutions? It is what I'm asking for. So look in your book and do this as an assignment. Then uh, you will know what I'm talking about. So these are things we do for the client who is having this condition. So the next thing, any question on this? So the client will take like a vitamin B6 paradoxin to help the client. The client will take uh, drugs that will stop vomiting. Odansitron is one of the medication. Odansitron. It is an anti-emetic medication, drug that stop vomiting. Anti-emetics is stop vomiting. So the client will take odacetron, sorry, odacetron medication. The client can also take drugs like metoclopramide. Metoclopramide, metoclopramide is also for vomiting. It's anti-emetics. So the client will take this medication to prevent them from throwing out. It controls the um, it controls vomiting, and the client can take corticosteroid also to help them. Corticosteroids, corticosteroids can help them in this case. So look at this medication and know exactly what we're talking about here. Any question on this hyperemesiclavidarum? Then we look at the next condition. We look at here is. Um, Iron deficiency anemia, iron deficiency, deficiency anemia, or we call it anemia in pregnancy. <laughs> now, under this, 
This occurs during pregnancy due to inadequate maternal iron storage, which and uh, there is insufficient amount of blood <coughs> ions that will start to with the system. That's when this occurs. Then there are risk factors that lead to this condition in pregnancy. Normally, we should space our children every two years. If you have, you cannot have a child back to back because it takes two years for the body to become fully functional and normal when you have one child when you have the first delivery. So when you don't put enough time between two kids, you're going to have blood loneliness problem or iron deficiency anemia. When a, a woman who has heavy menses, she can also have this condition. <clears throat> Diet low in ions. When you have twin pregnancy or multi-fetal pregnancy or gestations, you are at risk for having this anemia anemic condition. Client who vomit frequently who has morning sickness, they can also be exposed to iron deficiency anemia. The client will show weakness, fatigue, they will have they'll be irritable, they will have headache, they're gonna they will feel dizzy and they'll feel lightheaded, uh lightheadedness, and they'll have shortness of breath. <clears throat> they're gonna have elevated liver enzyme, and they're gonna have better rubin level. Uh, will be elevated also. So these are things that are going to happen to the client when the client have this particular anemia. They will have craving for unusual food. So they will crave for unusual food called pika. Pika is unusual food. It's not food that you can eat. It could be dead from the floor. It could be plastic. It could be some, they will put something in their mouth just to chew on to carry away the feelings. So they're going to have that. Now, so the client will have brittle nails. They will have SOB, shortness of breath, and they're going to have pylor when they have anemia. It's like three cartons that they're going to have. They're going to have pylor, they're going to have brittle nails, and they're going to have uh, shortness of breath. And the three cardinal signs when the client, when we do physical assessment, when the client has anemia, it's like the three cardinal signs you're going to see. <clears throat> so in this case, the client, we recommend the client should take an iron supplement, uh, 27 milligrams per day. The client should take their prenatal vitamins. The client should take, um, should increase dietary intakes in iron, rich food, legumes, fruits, green, le green liver vegetables, and uh, other meat and other products that will increase the iron input. Um, we should educate the clients on ways to minimize gastrointestinal adverse effect of the medication. So they can take drugs. The drug comes in two types. We have one, we have the, the ferrosulfate, the ferro medications, and we have the iron dextrin. So the iron dextrin is the one that comes in injectable form, injectables, and this one comes in PO. Now, this doesn't. This is not given IV or RM. It's only given PO. This can be given IV or RM. The dextrin is given IV or RM. Now, what is important to note is this just can stain the teeth. So the client can use straw to take it. It has a metallic teeth. It has a bad taste. The client can use other juice 
or other juices to take along to, 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 to dilute the taste. When the client done, the client should clean their teeth and their mouth after because it can cause the teeth to get stained. These are important interest points. Um, also for the iron death strain, um, so the iron death strain can be given as an alternative to this drug if the client cannot tolerate the PO. Any question on gestational diabetes uh, on on iron deficiency anemia? Any question on this topic? So, yeah. Please. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. You said? I said, what is the cause of it? So, the number one cause is increased HCG. When you apparently you are having increased HCG, it's the primary cause of hyperemesic of a diary. But uh, there are other causes that are uh, other risk factors, like we talked about it, uh, your first pregnancy, when you are having or multiple gestation, you are having twin pregnancy, when you have like diabetes in pregnancy, when you have like a family history of hyperemesis, it's a family history, when you have like a gastrointestinal disorder, those are all risk factors. But what I know is the HCG levels will increase that smell in your nose. You will feel funny, you want to throw up because of the smell of the HCG hormones in your body. That's, that's what's going to happen. To you any question on hyper amnesic of a diary or iron deficiency anemia yeah amado you're saying that when a person taking taking iron they have to drink a true straw i said it's good to take it through the straw because the straw will not sting the teeth because if you take it like this in your mouth it will sting the teeth or if you take it like that you gotta, you gotta rinse your mouth and make sure you clean the teeth for iron for this iron medication. Okay, because yeah. we don't have any on book here, but it's not here. Yeah, it's not even in what I'm reading from. I'm just, it's just a okay. thought. And I, and I think the iron dextrin, I think we can use the Z track to administer the, the, yeah, the Z track method to administer it. The Z track. I didn't see it, but I, I'm sure what I'm saying. The Z track method to administer it. So look on the Z track method. Watch it on YouTube. How do we administer choose Z track method? You see on YouTube Z track method injection. How do we administer it? Yeah, you see the way they, they administer it. Yeah. So let's look at the next one, which is gestational diabetes method. This, this, this is one of the most important one. GDM gestational diabetes method. Now. Um, in this case, it is a condition that the woman will experience when she gets pregnant. She did not, she, she never had diabetes in her life, but she only experienced this condition during her pregnancy. That's when she started experiencing the condition. Now, it is an impairment. It is an impairment to glucose metabolism during pregnancy. Um, 
our ideal blood glucose is 70 to 110 milligram per deciliter. That is our ideal blood glucose normal level. 70 to 110 milligram per deciliter. That is our normal blood glucose level. Anything below is hyper. Anything above is hyper. Now, under here, um, approximately half of those that will come down, 50% of those that will have this condition will have the regular diabetic condition in their life along the way. So, those that will have this condition in pregnancy, they might come down with diabetes mellitus in their life in the long run. Now, um, when there is a spontaneous abortion, it exposes us to having this condition. When a client has infection, hydramnial condition, all these things, ketoacidosis, hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia, all these conditions can increase the risk to the fetus, to, 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 to destroy the fetus. Now, the risk factor for this condition for this condition is um, obesity, hypertension, glycoluria, maternal age above 25 puts you at risk for GDM, previous delivery of an infant that was large or stillbirth. These are risk factors for gestational diabetes mellitus. Um, when there is this one, when we have the system that we us, there are two things we want to be experiencing. We'll either be experiencing hyperglycemia, hyperglycemia, or we'll be experiencing hypoglycemia. Now, what I want to do for me in this topic. I want you to understand the signs and symptoms for hyper and hypo. It is important to know the fingertip. In hypoglycemia, you're going to have nervousness. The client will be nervous. You'll have nervousness. The client is going to have um, headache, weakness. They'll have headache. They'll have weakness. In hypo, they are also going to have blur vision, tingling of the mouth, blur vision, tingling of the mouth, and they'll be hungry. Hunger, these are the symptoms for hypoglycemia. Nervousness, headache, weakness, blur vision, hunger, and tingling of the mouth. In hyperglycemia, the client going to have the three P's, as well as the three P's, polydipsia, polyphagia, and polyuria. Are the three cardinal signs for hyperglycemia. Now, when we talk about hyperglycemia, we are talking about diabetes mellitus. Hyperglycemia, yes, it is the complication of diabetes mellitus. So we can talk about one and leave one. So you have polyphagia, polydipsia, polyuria, you have nausea, you have abdominal pains, you have food to birth, and you're going to have uh and you're going to have um you're going to have flush skin. These are symptoms you're going to have when you have this particular hyperglycemia. In this case, 
the client will become hypoglycemic. They will have shaky body, their body will be shaking. They will have clammy pale skin. They will have shallow respiration. They will have rapid pulse. They will have hyperglycemia. They will have vomiting. And they will have excessive weight gain during pregnancy. So these are the signs of diabetes in general when you are pregnant. Now, what is important here is the test that we do under here and how the test can be done. Under here, the client will go for routine urinalysis. When you are pregnant, you do a routine urinalysis. Routine urinalysis. Urinalysis. Now, in this routine test, we'll know that you are having, the client will be having glycourea, glucoseurea. If you have glucose in the urine, you will have this. Then this will raise alarm for us to do the other test. <clears throat> so the client will have glycourea. Then we will do the glucola screening test. So the glucola screening test, we'll do the next test we'll do, we'll call it the glucola, glucola screening test. Screening test. Now this screening test, we have one hour test we'll do first. Then this will take us a one hour glucose test. The one hour glucose test. We'll do one hour glucose test. In this one hour glucose test, um, the client will ingest 50 gram of sugar water, 50 gram of glucose or dextrose. So they will ingest 50 grams of dextrose at the hospital in the morning or at the clinic in the morning. Now, um, we'll wait after one hour and we'll check the individual glucose test. Uh, we'll do for them the, the glucose blood strength to know the level of the glucose level after one hour. So by right, usually when we consume one, when we consume 50 grams of glucose within one hour, our blood cells, they should have used this 50 gram and we should not be at hyperglycemic level. So after ingesting this 50 gram of glucose within one hour, you walk back to the lab and it will do your blood test to know whether you're having high or low blood glucose. So in this case, um, we can do this test around 24 to 28 weeks of pregnancy. That's when the test can be done. Around 24 to 28 weeks of pregnancy. That's when we do this test. Now, in that case, in the, our blood glucose level above 130 or 140 will give us a positive result. So, if we do the glucose first test, which is one hour glucose test, many will ingest 50 grams of glucose. After one hour, we do the blood test. If we do the blood test and the blood glucose level was above 110 or above 140, the client is having, the client is positive of the test, meaning the client has high blood glucose. Yet still, the client cannot be diagnosed having gestational diabetes. When the client is reacted, the client is positive to this particular one-hour Google test. What happened next? This leads us to 
the two hours blood glucose test. Um, we do the two hours or the three hours. So, in this case, we we'll go ahead. We we'll do additional testing with a three hours oral glucose tolerance test. Is indicated, meaning if the client did the first one and it was reactive or positive, we we'll do the three hours glucose tolerance, uh, the three hours glucose uh, oral glucose test. Now, this oral glucose tolerance test will take us to the three hours. Now, in this case, the oral glucose tolerance test now, to do it, the client must come fasting. The first one, the client was not fasting. But after the first one is reactive, the client goes home and come back, prepare on another day. They should be fasting. So when they come back, they will come out fasting. They will do the FDS, or sorry, then we'll do the, the oral glucose tolerance test, the OGTT. Now, for the OGTT, the client must come fasting. So the client will come fasting. At this point, the client will ingest, instead of 50 grams, the client will now ingest 100 grams of glucose or dextrose. They will drink 100 grams of dextrose and then we'll look at the blood glucose level in one hour, in two hours, and in three hours. So remember the first test was the, the routine analysis. Because we saw glucose in the urine, this gave rise to the first one hour glucose test. In one hour glucose test, it does not require fasting. The client comes to the hospital with the test. The client will ingest 50 grams of glucose or dextrose water or sugar water in short. Now, if the one hour test is above 130 or 140 blood glucose level in, in our body, that will lead us to the one to the oral glucose tolerance test. In this case, the client will go home and come back fasting to do this test. So when they come back fasting, they will now ingest 100 gram of glucose or dextrose or sugar water. Now in this 100 gram, the second test, will check the client blood glucose level after one hour, after two hours, and after three hours. So in these three tests we'll do for the second test, our goal is the client should not have a blood glucose reading above 130 or above 140. So if the client had two of these tests to be above 130 or 140, the client is diagnosed of having gestational diabetes mellitus. That's what it means in here. Um, so this is how we do this. Any question on this particular Google's test for pregnancy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. I got a question. You talk about um, after the lady, usually they, they, they have diabetes. Mm -hmm. So when they breath with the baby is really big, that's when they develop diabetes. So what kind of diabetes? Is it type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes? Because they got two kinds of diabetes. I didn't answer that question. Is it a type or they develop the type 2 diabetes after the 5 years I heard, you talk about. I heard talking about the baby is born. I didn't ask any question. Can you give it all, please? My question here is what kind of diabetes do they after they have the baby? After 5 years, after the labor, after how you stay? 
um after they, they don't have that disease but they, after they have this baby mm -hmm. oh okay now honestly so it'll be mostly so, tattoo it'll be mostly huh? tattoo it'll be mostly tattoo diabetes mellitus um but sometimes it will be type one, but most it will be type two because it's type two that the woman is gonna be having in in pregnancy. Yeah. Type one is the one who live on insulin. Type two is the one who live on diet or medication or exercise. Oh, uh, type type two is the one who live on a medication. We can take pill medication. We can take um. Uh, it is the one that say insulin is the one that the body will produce insulin, but it will not be sufficient. For us to survive, so that's step two. In step one, the body is not producing insulin, we must live on insulin and external insulin source. In step one, so it'll be more than step two diabetes mellitus. Any question? I have a question too. Yeah, I want to find out because you said that they, they do the one hour glucose test, and if, uh, and if the sugar is above 130, mm -hmm. they will do the three hour. The three hour is it the same day or? She can go and come back the following time again. The scene because the scene they, they don't want she did first, she was not fasting. And to, to do the three hours test, you must, you must, you must be of fasting. So, the one hour, no fasting that's one, two, um, you will ingest 50 grams of sugar or dextrose. Um, the three hours. You gotta be fasting. You ingest 100 gram of glucose, and you will check it in one hour, in two hour, in three hour. In this case, um, the client does not require the client require fasting, so you gotta go and come back. This one there's no there's no fasting. The client can do the same day. So um. So the client will look at this. So 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 so, so these are things that uh, the client gonna do to go through the test. So let's do um the last condition. So we we'll look at uh gestational hypertension. Um, this is when the female is pregnant and uh, the female is having blood pressure that is high. Now, under here, we have mild, severe, and we have moderate. We have um, the HELP syndrome under here. Now, um, under here, when there's a poor perfusion that was that that would that derives from a um, vessel constriction or vasospasm. It leads to gestational hypertension. So in this case, we'll look at the condition gestational hypertension first. Then we'll look at the mild type, the severe type, the eclampsia, and the HELP syndrome. That those are conditions, sub conditions that make up the entire uh, gestational hypertension. Now. We we'll start off the gestational hypertension itself, GH, gestational hypertension. Now, under this gestational hypertension, um, 
It begins after 20 weeks of pregnancy. It starts after 20 weeks. It's important to note these things of pregnancy. Um, it is described as a disorder when we are having a BP above 140 or 90. And a BP above 140 or 90 after two weeks of gestation. That is uh, taken two times, four hours apart. So it's taken two times, four hours apart. Is referred to as gestational diabetes. So you went to the clinic to do your blood pressure, you are pregnant, you are above. 200 weeks and you had BP of 140 or 90 above at two different times. So let's say you did the first one 8 a.m. It should be eight hours apart, 9, 10, 11, 12. 1 p.m. You did another one, it was still 140 or 91 or above. In that case, <coughs> you, 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 you've done it two times, four hours apart. And the both results are above one photo or another. So this gives rise to a diagnosis of gestational <coughs> hypertension. That is it. Now, um, the presence of edema is no longer considered in this. There is no protein urea. Um, so in this case, the client should not have protein urea, there should be no edema and other things. That is regarded as gestational diabetes, uh, gestational hypertension. That's how we define gestational hypertension. Now, then, if this is not treated, if it is not resolved, it runs into my preeclampsia. So if it did not treat the first portion, which is gestational hypertension, it moved to the next level, which is called mild preeclampsia. Preeclampsia. Now, in the mild preeclampsia, it has different definition. In the first one, it said a BP above greater than 140 or 90. Two. We should do it four hours apart. Three, we should do it two times during the day period. This defines for us gestational hypertension. And there should be no protein in the urine. No protein in the urine. This defines for us gestational hypertension. Let's look at my preeclampsia. In my preeclampsia, um, the BP is uh there is protein urea so in my preclampsia everything here remains the same here but it comes with protein in the urine protein urea so for the client to have my preclampsia as, as, as a diagnosis they should have bp higher than 140 or 90 done four hours apart two times then they should have protein in the, in, in, in the urine so this will satisfy what we call mild preeclampsia diagnosis of the condition. Now, um, in this case, they can have edema or with or without edema. That's for who can have plus or minus edema. 
is fine with this mark prepaid. Now, if the mark one is not managed, it runs to the third condition, which is called severe preeclampsia. Now, we'll go to severe preeclampsia. Now, in the severe preeclampsia, what happened in here? One, the BP now is above one for now, it's around 160. It's not once it's over 110. So in severe preeclampsia, the BP now is 160 or 110 and above. That's one. Secondly, um, the client has protein in the urine that is above three plus. So the client has three plus or more protein in the urine. Protein in urea. Another one. Another one is the client is having high creatinine. The client having increased creatinine. Increased creatinine above 1.1. So the client creatinine level is above 1.1. Another one is the client is having cerebral or visual disturbance. So the client has the client has cerebral or visual problem, blood vision or the client having the client cannot focus, they cannot concentrate, they are having they are having dizziness. Now another one is the client has hyperreflexia. So the client is having hyperreflexia under this condition. Another one is the client is having peripheral edema, the client having hepatic involvement, the client has liver problem. The client is also having under here, they are having uh, epigastric right upper quadrant, they have epigastric right upper quadrant pain. So these are the symptoms, these are the, the presentation that will define severe preeclampsia. You remember in the first one, one further or another above, Four, four hours apart, two times, that defines gestational hypertension. In the mild preeclampsia, the client has this same symptom plus protein urea plus or minus edema. In the severe preeclampsia, the client now has a BP that is higher than 160 or 110. The client has three plus protein in the urine. The client has increased creatinine above 1.1. The client has cerebral and visual disturbances. The client has hyperreflexia. The client has liver involvement. The client has epigastric, red epigastric pain or red upper quadrant pain. This thing, this thing will define severe preeclampsia. If this is not managed, the client runs into eclampsia. So in eclampsia, let's see what happens in eclampsia. The client runs into the fourth one, which is eclampsia. So in eclampsia, what's happening under here? In eclampsia, the client will have the same symptom of severe or of the of the severe preeclampsia. So they have the same symptoms: the BP of one sixty or one ten, the hyperreflexia, hepatic involvement, blurred vision, cerebral problem, visual disturbances, epigastric pains. Red upper quadrant pains, they'll have all those symptoms. Plus, they are going to have under here, they will have seizure plus seizure, and they can have coma. 
So they'll have all the symptoms of severe preeclampsia plus seizure and coma. That defines for us eclampsia. Now, in eclampsia, um, the client is going to have headache. Now, these are two clients that will have. The client will have one. They will have headache first. From the headache, it will go into um, severe epigastric pain. Epigastric pains. Then it runs into um, liver problem, hepatic problem. Now, if that does not, if, if that is not put on a control, the client will have hyperreflexia. Then, if that does, if, if it's not stop, if it don't stop there, the client will have um, hemo concentration, concentration. They will have that. So when that happens, if all these things we can still manage it, then the client will start to converge. The client will have conversion. It will be like having seizure. At that point now, in the thing around, and the client can die at any point in time. So in eclampsia, it's dangerous. So the client can have this these symptoms. If it is not managed, if this is not managed, the client did not die in this in this condition, the client go to help syndrome. So the client both all called help syndrome. So the client will go to help syndrome, which is the last stage, is H E L L P help syndrome. Now this help syndrome simply means the client will have um him or hemolysis. The H stands for hemolysis, which is blood cell destruction. The client will have elevated elevated. The client will have elevated uh, liver enzyme. They will have elevated liver, liver, elevated liver enzyme. And then the client is going to have low platelets. They will have low platelets. So you have H stand for uh, hemolysis. EL stand for elevated liver enzyme. The L stands for low piece of platelets. So the client will have elevated, uh, the client will have hemolysis, elevated liver, low liver enzyme, and low platelets. So this will sum up to the HELP syndrome. The HELP syndrome, if the client condition is not managed from gestational hypertension, it will flow until the client will reach this HELP syndrome place. At this place, is just Hard to save the client, so the client is almost like more or like die. The client is more like dying than is gonna survive. So you want to go to your book, you want to read this step by step, to understand the rationale in there, understand what do we administer. In this case, we can give medications, we can give uh, metadopa, nafidipines, hydrolyzing, labitalol. We give anti-convulsant drugs like a magnesium sulfate. We have a magnesium sulfate. Um, we monitor the client's signs of magnesium toxicity. We look at the which include the client will have absence of particular deep tunnel reflexes. The client will have low urine output less than thirty. Those are signs of magnesium toxicity. The client will have low respiratory rate less than twelve. The client will have decreased level of consciousness. The client will have cardiac dysrhythmia. 
the client, those are symptoms of magnesium sulfate toxicity. If this if this if this occur, you want to discontinue the magnesium infusion right away. You want to stop it. You want to give the client calcium gluconate. Calcium gluconate is the antidote for magnesium sulfate. Calcium gluconate. Gluconate is the antidote for the drugs magnesium magnesium sulfate. And we administer magnesium sulfate when the client is having eclampsia or help syndrome. It's for seizure, is to stop conversion. But the client can also have a toxic effect of this magnesium sulfate. So whenever you are administering drugs that can create toxicity, you should always have that drug's antidote available. So the antidote for magnesium sulfate is calcium gluconate, or you might call it, uh, you might call it calcium chloride. It's other or calcium chloride is the antidote for magnesium sulfate. So whenever the client is on having this eclampsia or or a health syndrome condition, you want to go ahead and what? You want to go ahead and uh, you, you want to go ahead and give the magnesium sulfate and you want to stop uh, when the client having this you want to give magnesium sulfate. If the client is having magnesium toxicity, you stop the magnesium and you administer calcium, Google or calcium chloride as an antidote to save the client. Prepare the client for action to prevent respiratory or cardiac arrest. Maintain the client on the bare rest and encourage the client to be in a side lying position. The client is pregnant. If the client lies down on their back, they're going to have a, a supine hypertension, which is at that point in time, the client already died. If they're on their back, it's just going to increase their risk of dying faster. Have the client to avoid food that are rich in sodium. Have the client to avoid alcohol and tobacco, caffeine. Tell the client to drink six to eight glasses of ounces of water, uh, maintain a dark, quiet environment, maintain a picking airway in event of seizure, and administer anti-hypertensive medication as prescribed. These are things you want to look at. If you look in your book, you will have all these nursing management there for this condition. Please look at them and understand them to the best of your ability. Any question?